You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. On the last day of July, as we welcome you along to the programme, doesn't it seem odd on the last day of July to even be talking about the All-Ireland football champions? I think it's just going to take us quite some time to get used to the fact that we now have the All-Ireland finals in the month of July. But of course, it was Dublin's turn yesterday. They had a kind of a two-year break from it, but they are once again All-Ireland football champions, I suppose, proving that they really are good at this game. Game they uh, beat Kerry yesterday, winning their thirty-first title. But of course, the I think the biggest stat in the middle of all of that it is their seventh win in nine years. It's reading through the papers today. It's been described as a frantic, messy encounter. There was late points from Paul Mannion, and then of course the free from Dean Rock that saw Desi Farrell's uh, side win by uh, two points. So well done to Dublin, but commiserations to uh, Kerry. And I was thinking of all of the Kerry people and indeed the Kerry team who no doubt got on a bus or maybe got on a train uh, to head home uh, yesterday but I was just saying that journey back home, the weather miserable and you didn't get the win, you couldn't help but feel for the good people of Kerry so commiserations to Kerry but well done particularly if we've any Dublin people in our midst uh, today and of course today is also an important day for for the soccer for the ladies soccer uh, team even though the end I suppose is nigh for the Republic of of um, Ireland uh, because their Maiden World Cup adventure will wind down uh, today and the girls in green will be flying home after uh, today's match and of course today's match is against Nigeria. Now Nigeria are really chasing for a place in the last uh, 16 so they really want to get a result uh, today but so do our girls. Of course Nigeria caused a bit of upset in Group B and kind of blew up Group B when they had that win over Australia. They bet them at 3-2. But uh, the girls in green and the fourth seeds will likely put up a match uh, to them, that is uh, for sure. And of course, the one thing about today's match as well is the future of Vera Powell. And is she coming to the end of her managerial run with the women's team? Her, it's all very much up in the air. Her contract is about to expire and she still doesn't know if the FAI will be offering her a fresh deal. Now, this situation has been kind of on the back burner, I think, since around June. There was talks about what would happen with Vera Powell and she was hopeful. She wanted it sorted out before the team went to the World Cup but for whatever reason, that didn't happen. The talks seemed to be stalled. And then Vera Powell said she heard nothing from the association with regards to uh, where she stands. So obviously her focus then was all on the World uh, Cup uh, finals. And we know there's already plans for a big homecoming in Dublin on uh, Thursday. Media reports are saying it's unlikely that the FAI uh, will make any sort of big decision until after that homecoming because it would be a rather awkward situation for both Vera Powell and the players, particularly if they decide that this is the end for uh, Vera Powell. And she has done a lot. Nobody will ever be able to take from uh, Vera Powell and what she has done for the ladies over the last uh, two years. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Do you think this is the end of the road for uh, Vera Powell? But in the meantime, don't forget the focus this morning 
the girls are back playing against Nigeria at um, uh, 11. And then, of course, in September, they've got many, many more milestones uh, to reach because when they do come back in September, Ireland will be playing at the Aviva Stadium for the first time when Northern Ireland will travel to Lattonstown Road. And that's for the opening game in the inaugural UEFA Women's Nations League uh, campaign. So I think we've got a lot more to see of these girls, but we wish them luck against Nigeria this morning. 0818103103. And let me harp back to a Friday on the programme. I mentioned Paddy and Cove had contacted us because a courier had dropped off a parcel to his house. And it was, he says the address on it was correct. And Paddy lives in Ellenwood Grove in Cork. And Paddy got on to us and said, look, there are probably Ellenwood Groves in other parts of the city and uh, county. And rather than just return it, he said, I'd love to be able to get this parcel to whoever owns it. And we know it was a Miss L Connery that we were looking for. Lo and behold, it's Laura Connery. And she is, she does live in Ellum's Grove, but she lives in Ellum, Ellum Grove in the city. So she got in touch with us saying, I oh, hear you have, or somebody you know has my parcel. So we've put her in touch and Paddy and Laura were planning on making up over the weekend to make arrangements to get that parcel to Laura. So well done to uh, Paddy and Cove. Rather than simply just uh, returning it, he did go to some lengths to try to find out uh, who owned the parcel and that happens time and time again. Couriers delivering so many packages and I just heard it on the news there how the amount of young people are still doing a lot of their shopping online and of course uh, parcels can go uh, missing. And something we're going to be talking about a little bit later on and this is tied in with the the housing crisis, I suppose, and the desperate scramble for uh, housing. And it's a front page story on the Echo. And I was reading it this morning and I was thinking to myself, God, this is harping back to the era of the Celtic tiger and the desperate lengths that people went to in order to secure a house. And this desire to own your own home definitely surfaced over the weekend. Seemingly on Saturday morning, 19 house hunters slept in their parked cars overnight. It was at the site of a Cork development. reason they were sleeping in their cars, they were eager to be first in line to put a deposit down to buy a new home. The number rose, I'm told, according to Brenda Graham in the Echo today, the number rose to 30 cars uh, before the gates finally opened at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday. It's a site at Waterfall Road. Now, these houses aren't ready yet. The construction only began last June. I'm told there's a total of 275 units, but the first phase one of the development were launched at the weekend. I think there was a total of uh, 42 homes. So we will uh, speak with the sales agent a little bit uh, later on. But it just struck me, houses that are not even built yet and you have people sleeping in their cars overnight so desperate in order to put down a uh, deposit. And like houses do not come cheap as I saw one of the people who camped out speaking in the paper today and wanted to remain uh, anonymous saying just this is absolutely uh, ridiculous we're sleeping out overnight we're trying to fight someone uh, in order for us to hand over half a million euro we're queuing to give them money and it's not an insignificant amount of uh, money and and 
he or she is absolutely spot on. So we will talk about that a little bit later on. But as I say, we are back to that desperate, desperate scramble for housing for those lucky enough, I suppose. That's the difference between now and the Celtic Tiger. It's those who are lucky enough to be able to afford to buy. Congratulations as a texter to Dublin. They really are a brilliant team and nobody can take away from this team. Uh, bearing in mind, says this texter, when you look at this team, three of the team members have nine All-Ireland medals each. Fitzsimons, McCarthy and Cluxton. It'll never be achieved again. Yeah, it is incredible to think that any one player would have nine All-Ireland medals, but to think three of that team has nine All-Ireland medals it is an amazing, amazing achievement. Wonderful prize uh, to give away, prizes to give away on the programme right across uh, this week. We are hooking up with Michael Flatley, uh, who is, of course, groundbreaking choreographer of uh, Riverdance. But of course, after Riverdance, Michael Flatley then went on to have massive global success with his hit show, Lord of the Dance. And Lord of the Dance has been taken to the next level this year because this year is the 25th anniversary of the first staging of Lord of the Dance. So fans can expect new staging, new costumes and choreography. Plus there's cutting edge technology that wouldn't have been around 25 years ago. The special effects and I'm told unbelievable uh, lighting. So the 25th anniversary show, it actually opens in the Cork Opera House on the 9th of August and then it will run for five uh, nights. Every day this week, we have a pair of tickets to give away to Lord of the Dance at the Opera House. And then on Friday, we will upgrade one of our daily prize winners' prizes with a pr- uh, overall prize of a hotel stay, dinner and also tickets to go along and see the show. So stay tuned for that a little bit later on. We'll do it by text and WhatsApp. That's where everyone gets a chance to enter. We will have a question for you about Lord of the Dance and your chance to win those wonderful prizes in association with the Cork Opera House and the staging of the 25th anniversary show at the Opera House opening on the 9th of August. Now, Government proposals to move birth and death registrations online could also include a provision for the introduction of a policy where information of a death is communicated across multiple departments all at the same time. The Oireachtas Social Protection Committee has been discussing this topic and joining me, the committee uh, chair, that is uh, Deputy Dennis Nocton. Good morning to you, Dennis. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome to the programme. Now, did the pandemic help us see the need for an online registration option? Absolutely. So, look, I suppose the current registration for uh, deaths at the moment uh, is a paper-based process. It goes back to the uh, 1800s and the time of Queen Victoria. Uh, And at the moment, uh, you have a three-month window in which to register a death. Um, Now, most countries across Europe have a process where deaths are are registered within uh, five days. And it was very clear during COVID that when we couldn't go in in person to register deaths, that the current system was completely outdated. So as a result of this now, the government are bringing forward uh, reforming legislation that would allow for uh, a lot of these uh, death registrations, all of them to take place. Uh, electronically and uh, online. So there would be a requirement on a doctor or hospital to report such a death 
uh, within two days and people would have, a relative would have 28 days in total uh, to, to register a death. But we would hope that most of those would take place in a far more timely manner than that. So what you're saying is the current system would remain in place where somebody goes into a local office. So this would be introduced side by side with it. Yes, so the current system where people go into the uh, local HSC uh, registry office will still remain in place, uh, but they will have 28 days to do so rather than the current uh, three months. But we're also making it easier for people to uh, register such deaths uh, either by phone uh, or uh, online so that there are a number of different routes, whichever is the most suitable for people, to make those registrations. Yeah, because I have to say, sometimes those public offices, Dennis, can be a bit too public. Well, we made a specific recommendation in relation to that, that there there would be a quiet area, so to speak, where people could go quite discreetly and uh, do that. And in fairness to the Department uh, of uh, Social Protection, which has many offices in conjunction uh, with the HSE registration office across the country now. Uh, the Department of Social Protection have those facilities at present. So it's a matter of the HSE and the Department of Social Protection, which has overall responsibility for the registration of births, deaths and marriages, uh, to come up with uh, a mechanism where those facilities could be used for those purposes and that people can very confidentially uh, report such a death yeah, rather it's than... Just, a it's a very office. upsetting time for, for people as well and I think anything to make it easier. Now, is the bill also going to be... Is there going to be an opportunity to introduce the, the, the Tell Us One service uh, like they have in the UK and just explain to people what that is? Right, so at, at this stage, all we have is the broad outline of the new legislation uh, and under the current laws uh, in dealing with legislation, the government must submit that draft proposal to the committee for its opinion before they finalise the legislation itself. And our committee has made a number of recommendations, including providing facilities where uh, discrete disclosures could be made in terms of registering deaths. Also, that the staff would receive additional bereavement training in dealing with people uh, who are registering those deaths. But one of the recommendations we have made is that we replicate a system that is currently operating in the UK, which is called the Tell Us Once approach, which means that once this is death is reported through the General Registry Office, uh, that that will then communicate with other government departments and agencies, uh, such as the Department of Social Protection in terms of a, an old age pension, uh, with the HSE in terms of medical cards and also uh, hospital appointments so that people do not get very hurtful letters, uh, you know, months or even years later uh, looking for uh, calling someone for an appointment or renewing a medical card when that person has already passed away. And that can be really upsetting, Dennis, uh, to people to receive, you know, a loved one has passed away and two years later a letter arrives in the post for you know, the, the hip operation that your mother had been waiting on or whatever it is. You can understand why people get very upset by those letters. Absolutely. And the current system 
doesn't allow for that linkage at the moment where, you know, you have a paper-based system where the registration can happen up to three months after uh, someone uh, passing away. And the big difficulty and the real hurt is caused where a person is waiting maybe on a a medical procedure that could extend their life or improve their quality of life. Uh, They weren't able to get that in a timely manner. And getting an appointment, you know, six months later for potentially a life-saving or life-extending procedure can be extremely hurtful uh, for families. So what we want to see is a system whereby registrations are made in a timely manner by the medical profession or by the family of the person concerned. And that then would be relayed directly to the HSE. This would streamline their appointments process uh, and lead to far more efficient issuing of appointments. Uh, It would also save uh, the HSE money in terms of uh, closing off a medical card uh, payment and save the Department of Social Protection where maybe a disability payment or a state contributory or non-contributory pension uh, is being paid. Okay, yeah, the save certainly the savings to be made as well. And and I also was reading over the weekend, um, uh, uh, Dennis, that you looked at the retrospective registration of stillborn babies. Yes, this is a recommendation that has been made uh, by the government and what they're planning to do is to change uh, the definitions for uh, the registration of stillbirths. So and the reason for that is that... Uh, uh, medicine has improved dramatically since the register of stillbirths was first brought into place. And now we know that, uh, you know, babies at a reduced gestational weight and gestational age uh, can be viable. Uh, and because of that, uh, that the law needs to be revised in this area. We also, uh, the government is also introducing uh, a lower threshold uh, where there are multiple Uh, pregnancies, you know, where uh, the fetus would be uh, of a smaller uh, weight. Um, And what we have recommended as a committee is that uh, where stillbirth uh, happened in the past and couldn't legally be recorded up to now because it didn't meet uh, the gestational age threshold or the weight threshold, that the new weights and gestational ages would now apply and that they could be retrospectively uh, registered. And so important for the ba- for the parents of those little babies. Yes, it is. And, and, and look, the, there is an issue in terms of the whole grieving process. There was debate among the committee and among the submissions that we received on whether that register should be uh, fully public uh, with uh, families having the option to keep the names and the registration private or that there would be a separate public register that families could put uh, that uh, stillbirth uh, death on that register. Um, and, And there was a bit of debate in relation to that, but based on the engagement with the department officials, we felt it was better to have two separate registers. The register of stillbirth that will be accessible to the parents and immediate relatives uh, of uh, the stillbirth baby. And secondly, then, uh, the families have the option of putting that uh, stillbirth on 
a public register as well. Okay, and it isn't for everybody, but for the parents that want it, it is. It is so uh, so so important. And I was delighted to see that um, Failacon were in before your committee because they they do the most amazing work with uh, parents uh, who lose uh, tiny little babies. So you've you've got all these recommendations now, um, Dennis. What now happens to the recommendations made by your committee? So our report now has been submitted to the Department of Social Protection and uh, Minister Heather Humphreys. Uh, The department, in conjunction with the Office of the Parliamentary Draftsman, are now drafting the law itself uh, as we speak. And they will incorporate our recommendations uh, into the piece of legislation that will be published and they'll be considered by both Dáil and Shannon Dairden. And hopefully that these recommendations will be taken on board uh, in the drafting of the new law. If they're not, uh, we have the opportunity uh, when this comes back before our committee in legislative form uh, to actually seek changes at that stage uh, to it. So uh, this is uh, a preliminary stage before the new law is published and we're hoping that many of these recommendations can be incorporated into that. Okay. All right. Listen, Dennis, I appreciate that. And actually, before I let you go, you've uh, decided that you're not going to run whenever the next general election is? That's correct. Uh, I decided earlier this year, I made a public announcement. I've given 26 years uh, of my life to public life and, and in Dáil Aird, and I think it's time now for me to try my hand at something different. It's a, a tough job. Uh, Yes, it is a tough job, and I think it's a job that has got more difficult uh, over the years. I think, you know, it has become a job that that is more demanding, and I think social media hasn't helped uh, Mm. in in relation to that. And look, for me, uh, I've given a lot of service. I think there's an opportunity there now for uh, someone that's maybe younger and more agile uh, to take it on, and um, I give plenty of notice uh, in advance of the next general election, so there's plenty of opportunity for, for people to put their name forward come the next general election in uh, Roscommon Galway constituency. And what next then for Dennis Nocton? I don't know what comes okay. uh, next uh, for me. I am presently chairing an international committee of 21 members of parliament where uh, we are working to try and build stronger relationships between the scientific community uh, and parliaments across the world. Uh, you may know that I, um, you know, uh, was a researcher in UCC uh, a long number of years ago, and I'd like to get back into that whole area of the relationship between science and Parliament uh, and trying to work to strengthen that engagement. So something probably in that field uh, down the road, whenever. Uh, uh, the next general election takes place. Yeah, so it certainly isn't pipe and slippers and retirement for Dennis Knox. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely <laughs> Listen, not. a pleasure speaking with you, Dennis. Thank you for that and Thank thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Independent uh, Dáil Deputy Dennis Nocton, who is also Chair of the Oireachtas Social Protection Committee. Cork County Council has decided to write to the National Ploughing Association requesting the option for people to buy tickets to the ploughing championships with cash at the entrance rather than card-only transaction. Independent North Cork Councillor Frank Roach raised the issue at council level and Frank joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Frank. Good morning, Patricia. Frank, is this the first time that the National Ploughing Championship has decided to go to cashless ticketing? Yes. Um, I've attended the ploughing metro probably well over 40 years and I always bought at the gate and, and 
I, I'd make a point of being there early and look the order they could get. And this year they're asking people to book their tickets in advance, to book online. online right. You that's think right. that won't work for everybody? Well, I'll tell you, it was brought to my attention by three or four people uh, before I raised the motion in Cork County Council. And um, there's an awful lot of the rural family people, and particularly the people who will be interested in, in that day out, um, the three-day annual day out, they are not, first of all, they don't carry credit cards. And secondly, they're not, um, they're not able to use the internet. Now, they might be able to use it for the RIP or something like that, but they're not really up to scratch on the internet. And those people are very worried and upset that they can't use, the, that they won't be able to get tickets to what very much. Well, I know last week when we were looking at some of the CSO figures coming out from last year's uh, census, it uh, showed one in five households headed by somebody over 65 doesn't even have an internet connection. That's the other problem. Yes, I'm, I'm actually in, in the yard at the moment and they tell me that they have got an internet. <clears throat> so you're saying nothing wrong with having the option of using cards? Well, have the option. By all, by all means, have the option. But that, uh, you would also be able to buy the ticket at the gate at the entry into the, in, into the event. OK, let me bring in um, Anna Maria <coughs> McHugh, who is the Assistant Managing Director of the National Ploughing Association. Uh, good morning to you, Anna Marie. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning, Frank. You're, you're welcome morning. to the programme. Why this decision to have cashless ticketing and why this decision to get people to book in advance? Yeah, a, a couple of things, Patricia, that I just want to clarify there. In actual fact, um, I thank Frank for bringing this up because I think it is a subject that needs to be discussed. And, you know, all the comments that Frank is making there about people that are not internet savvy and that are, don't have cards, I just want to let people know, as many would, the managed director of the National Plowing Association is a, is a woman well in her 80s. So just take that into account. And she doesn't use um, online ticketing. She doesn't do that. She, she wouldn't be um, IT savvy to do that. So she knows exactly where people are, are coming from. But the issue we have, and, and some people are misreading this, this is a health and safety driven measure. This is a directive that we have been given by the emergency services based on the attendance figures on Wednesday of the ploughing last year. We were coming very, very close to a point that we were going to have to close the gate. And our problem is, if we have to close the gate at the event, if these neighbours and people that Frank mentioned, if they arrive, after that time, what happens? You have a situation that we can't turn people back on the roads. We have capacity in the car parks so people can't get into the car parks and suddenly there's a complete blockade everywhere. And obviously if you've driven from Cork and you can't get into a venture, you're not going to be a happy camper. Has either. that ever happened before, Anna-Marie, that, that literally too many people turned up on the yeah, one day? We've had once or twice that we got close to it, but last year was, was the definitely a different level and main reason being Patricia it was weather driven and you know we have a huge a brilliant relationship with all the emergency services I have to say that we work very closely with them we have to when you're talking about bringing in 300,000 people into an area over three days you have to work really closely with the emergency services but they brought us to our attention they've been saying it a couple of years and we've been always saying oh no it's not the nature of the ploughing we can't do it we can't do it but reality struck last year when they said it to us after the event they said, you've seen what happened on the Wednesday. The reason being, weather was going to be bad Thursday, so people came Wednesday. And what was said to us very clearly was, what if the weather was going to be bad Tuesday and be bad Thursday? Well, then everybody could decide to come Wednesday. And that's the only reason this has been driven. We're not, some of the comments that we're, you know, reading, things like people saying, 
that oh they want they want um, they want the money in now they want to bank the money. I don't mind if people don't pay until the morning they're coming and book the ticket then on on the, on the way once we know the capacity of the site. Even children now have to be included. Children are free under twelve, but when an adult is booking a ticket, they must add the child to it because. It's all about... It's a head count. It's a head count. Yeah, yeah. And it's a better way. Honestly, if there's an easier way of doing this and a way like... I know Frank is saying about the people that are not internet savvy. Absolutely. One of the... At that council meeting that Frank attended, there was talks about the um, an elderly action meeting where people were finding it difficult on phone lines and automated. Anyone that rings NPA, and this has always been the case, will get through to a person. And if somebody rings us, and they, they have access to a credit card. They don't know how to work it. We'll process it for them. Otherwise, people can send it. I checked with our post office the other day. Anyone can go into the local post office, get a postal order, send it to us. We'll send back the tickets. They can send a check. You know, we want to facilitate all our patrons who've been coming to the event since we started in 1931 now. So we're not a new gig on scene. So, but the the thing with the booking, you whatever date you book for uh, Anna Marie, you you can't you have to go on that day, isn't that what you're asking people to do? Well, sure, Patricia, if you get a ticket for Tuesday and Tuesday's wet, and you decide to come Wednesday, we're back into the same thing yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, listen, I fully understand where no, you're, where you're coming from on this. We really don't want to be here, so it's not you know any of the negative comments. I have to say, please trust the national ploughing. We've, we've been here for years. We've always been about promoting rural Ireland and being an event for the, the people of rural Ireland. That's what we're about now. And somebody said to me yesterday on, on the radio that um, you know, actually was the, the mayor, uh, the Lord Mayor of Cork said that, you know, rural people. I'm a rural person. I live on a farm. I'm married to a farmer. And I know about a cow calf and, and, and suddenly you can't go to where you wanted to go. I know all about that. But what I would be doing is I would be booking my ticket very close to the day. If I don't know when I can go, Frank, what do you yeah. say? Well, you're you're, you're listening to to Anne Marie. It's not what I'm, she wants to do. She doesn't really have much choice on this. Well, I I agree with Anne Marie. They have rented an, an excellent show. I've been attended myself well in excess of forty years. Um, I understand what she's saying, and I understand about um, the, um, the the health and safety issues of it. But having said that, um, the fee. I'd hate to see the climate lose its momentum and to lose um, what it has built up. And sadly, uh, an awful lot of people have told me that if it comes to that, that they're going to boycott it this year, they're not going to bother going. Now, the other problem that people are starting to see is a lot of the major manufacturers, uh, machinery manufacturers and tractor manufacturers, the fact that the crowds have got so big, they're actually moving away from the plowing, national plowing championships because it's kind of gone a small bit away from the, the rural scene and a small bit away from the farming scene. And for that reason, people are kind of saying, look, they're actually moving away from where they started. Now, I will attend the plowing match, and I always attend the plowing match, and for a whole long to be on, I hope that I will be able to attend it. But if people are starting to feel that it's no longer... Um, the rule, it's losing its rule effect and it's losing what people kind of think of the ploughing measure. You think of the ploughing measure, you think of farming, you think of agriculture. And the fact that the word ploughing is used in it is very close to agriculture. Now, okay, let, 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 let Anna Maria answer that. Are you moving away from your roots, Anna Maria? Not at all. Um, Patricia, we have very strict regulations on how many non farming, non agricultural exhibits there can be. 
And even on that basis, we actually have some machinery companies on a waiting list at the moment for, for exhibition space. We never had a waiting list for, for exhibition space in July ever in the history of the association. We have it this year. We are very focused on keeping the agri as the main part of, of the, the event. And we only allow a certain percentage, and we haven't changed that in the last 10 years, the percentage of retail. Because we could have gone that way. We could have got in more exhibitors and had them all in retail because it would be a great house and home, you know, um, uh, gardening and all that event, motor, all that. It would have been a great event and gone completely that way. But we started as an agricultural exhibition, so that will always be our core. And as Frank mentioned, the, the main focus of the event is for the association. We're running the National Ploughing Championships and we have 23 ploughing competitions with many, many competitors from Cork, Kerry, Tipperary, all, every county in Ireland. And that's our, our main our main focus. That will never change. That's okay, let, I can tell you, some of the some of the comments uh, coming in, uh, somebody says, uh, Fimber says, Patricia, everything is going online today. It's promoting this cashless society. The GAA have already done it. What Anna-Marie doesn't realise is that banks charge for these transactions. It'll cost people more. Someone says, uh, sell ploughing tickets through Centra are super value. And then you'll know the capacity. Have you looked at selling them at a retail outlet, Anna-Marie? We, we have. We, we're actually in the process of, of um, talking to one of our sponsors that would have a number of outlets that they could actually have the tickets. So we're looking at that as an option. We're, we're going through it right now. Patricia, the main thing to know is we wouldn't be going this this route just to go this route and, and you know, and actually have the tickets online. It's a big process and it's a costly process for the National Ploughing Association. Getting your gate ticket on the gate would be an easier process for us. We don't have a choice. It's the health and safety measures that have to be put in place. We will work with every individual case that comes. We've had people, we always have people ringing us that are in in different circumstances, different situations. We'll always work with those people and they're more than welcome to ring us. And if somebody wants to go to the ploughing, they'll get to the ploughing. Okay, someone says, in regards to the ploughing, it sounds like people are going to have to stop with this attitude. I've always done it this way and it'll be grand. They need to pack that in and get with the uh, times. And somebody else says, if the issue is Wednesday, and Wednesday is normally the busiest day of the three days, can you not put extra controls in place? But I think you're missing the point. It's the fact of the amount of people. It's the headcount, isn't it? Yeah, but believe it or not, Patricia, it's so interesting. And I'm a little bit surprised that the, now, whatever about Frank, because he just might know, but I'm very surprised that the mayor doesn't know about regulations on, on big scale events because literally every entry and exit to the ploughing and to any other large scale event is measured and the capacity of exit in emergency is actually factored in so literally every inch of free space in the arena every inch of entrance gate capacity and even in a field even though we're, we're using six or seven hundred acres where our main activities would happen would be in the trade arena and that has to be measured of what capacity it can take Everybody has to be able to exit in a, in a, a specific amount of time and how quick can they get out based on the exit path. It's just huge control, and I mean huge. And it's all statutory regulations. As I said before, we work very closely with the emergency services. It's not their, it's not their fault. It's the statutory regulation, which to a point you have to say is right too. Health and safety is important, and if something happens, you need to be able to get people out quickly. Okay, and by the way, I, I, tickets are already gone on sale. How are they selling? They're selling well. This time of year, you'll get a lot of, of people kind of booking that are very sure of the group, school groups, tour groups and that, that know exactly what they're doing. The individuals, because obviously the, the, the rate is much cheaper if you actually are buying in a group rate. If you're buying, for example, students, school groups um, that are secondary school groups, they can get the, their ticket as, as cheap as 15 euro now if they're booking a school group at this time. So um, it, it's always worked for them. And don't forget, Patricia, that last year, 
over half the attendees booked online. Anyway, without any push, because people are going that, that, that direction. Now, you say about the busy day being Wednesday. Like, there, it's very, very possible. Again, I can't guarantee, but it's very, very possible that on Thursday you can go to the gate of the ploughing and pay with your cash to get a ticket in once we haven't exceeded capacity. But are you going to take that risk? So you will accept cash or pay with the cars? If we have the capacity. But yeah. is somebody going to drive two or three hours and take the chance? Because, if, if, you know, if our yeah, cut-off, for example, was 120,000 on that day, yeah. and the person coming in is 121,001, we have to close the gate. That'll be the directive and there'll be no choice about it. But would you be able to maybe put out on social media and say early in the morning, this is how many tickets are available? Could you do something like that? We, we could at that point, but it can all change very quickly. When, when it's peak time at the, at the ploughing, people entering between 7 o'clock and 10, everything can change very quickly. We have six routes into the, into the ploughing and it can increase by thousands in minutes. Very quickly. I know yeah. I wouldn't be driving. I, I just all right, Fra- Frank, you wanted to come in there? Well, I, um, one of the real places where I think that they could sell it is actually at the local co-ops because, um, look, to be basically in the farming community. And, and then people and, could pay cash if they were going in somewhere. People could yeah. at, at the co-ops, sell it at the co-ops. Now, the other option, you know, I maybe some of the, the, the people attending the bar, the, the, the traders might be like, well, would they not consider putting on the fourth day? No, it actually, it wouldn't be... Um it wouldn't be appealing to, to exhibitors, to be honest with you, Frank. It's a huge I understand cost, what you're saying, and I know what you're yeah. saying, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's not actually the cost of the trade stand itself. It's, it's the bills, it's the staffing, it's all of that. It's not being in your own offices, in your own retail outlets during those days. And another factor, too, because we're in a greenfield site every year and we're in rural Ireland, if we have very bad weather, we can just about get out in three days even though we put down huge amount of power of power It's a huge undertaking. Event. It's huge. Alright, listen, we're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you both uh, for joining us and uh, good luck with the Ploughing Championships for this year. Yeah. Uh, and and can I just say to Frank before I go, look, yeah. I'm glad that people like Frank have such an interest in the ploughing that they're prepared to get on radio and tease this out. Okay. Alright, All right. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank Anna-Marie as well for, for uh, coming on this. But like, what my big fear is I certainly am one that will be promoting the ploughing. I want to keep the ploughing going, right? But the amount of well, so does so, so Anna Marie. Absolutely. Oh, we no, no, we understand that. But like, there's an awful lot of people, and, and, and I will say it publicly, there's an awful lot of people saying, look, if it is online, we're not going. And, okay. and that's what I'm afraid of, is that, that there will be an awful back kick on this that will really affect the, the, you know, the attendance of going. Okay, only time will tell. We've got to leave it there. Thank you both uh, for joining us. That is Anna uh, Marie McHugh, who is the Assistant Managing Director of the National Planning Association and North Cork Councillor Frank Roach. You can see a lot of commentary coming in about cashless society. We're back to that again. And in particular about the move by the National Planning Championship moving to cashless ticketing. But as Anna, May, um, Anna Marie, as opposed to Anna May, her mother, uh, explained to us, it's, uh, it's a director from the emergency services. She very much says their hands are tight not everybody happy judging by some of the comments coming in you're listening to c103's cork today podcast phone and text lines are currently closed
All this week, I've teamed up with Fulcher Ireland to show you how you can have the best daycation ever. I'm going to be out experiencing a daycation and exploring some of the many things close to Cork, like Smuggler's Cove and the West Cork Model Railway Village, giving you the inside scoop on how you can experience all the fun of a holiday in a single day. And I have a 100 euro one-for-all voucher up for grabs for you to experience your own best daycation ever. Stay tuned for what's going to be an adventurous week on C103 with Fulcher Ireland. With uh, uh, Deputy Dennis Nocton, and we're talking about what um, we would need, I think, a uh, new piece of uh, legislation. What they're talking about is amending how we register births and deaths in this country, and they're looking at an electronic model whereby we would have and we would have some kind of a similar registration to what they have in the UK, which is called the Tell Us Once approach uh, to registering the details of a per- person's death, and it stops them the weeks and months and can be years after somebody has passed away some other government department often as not it's the HSE and it isn't physically somebody sending out a letter but it would be a computer generated letter but if they had just this tell us once approach to registration then all of the computers and all of the different partners would find out that uh, somebody has passed away so you wouldn't be getting letters out calling somebody in for a hip or a knee replacement or calling somebody for a cataract appointment and they might be dead with the last number of years and uh, was listening to my chat with Dennis and Anne said I receive uh, I receive a letter from the insurance uh, company for an insurance that we took out for me when our children were young. It was taken out of my husband's name. If I should pass away while the children were still young, my husband would have received a lump sum in mon- with money in order to fall back on. But my husband has since passed away. He died first. He's now passed away seven years ago. Now, one of the, one of the things I did, Suzanne, was I informed the insurance company and yet they still can set, can continue to send me out letters is in his name and then they address the letter as Mr. Deceased. Isn't that shocking? How stupid is that? I've continued to pay the insurance down through the years and they know that is just... And so disrespectful as well. That's really galling and annoying. And I don't know if the Tell Us Once approach would work for insurance companies or not. I know it's specifically for all of the different different government departments, but whether that could also extend out to other companies as well, I simply don't know. 0818 And then following my chat with Councillor Frank Roach and also Anna-Marie McHugh, who is the Assistant Managing Director of the National Ploughing Association, with the news this year that for the first year ever, you can't just rock up to the gate of the ploughing championship with your money in your hand saying, and you give me a ticket, uh, please, because they've moved to cashless uh, ticketing. It, it's a directive that's been driven by the emergency services, as Anna-Marie uh, pointed out, and they're asking people now, you need to book your tickets in advance, so you need to decide are you going on the Tuesday or the Wednesday or the uh, Thursday. It's not making everybody happy, I can say that. Neve in Mitchestown says, I understand why they are doing this at the National Ploughing Association, but many of us make the decision last minute. In many cases, we make it on the morning of the ploughing. So it certainly will rule that out for us. Yeah, you're, you are going to have to pick your day and book your tickets. And now you can, as Anna-Marie said, you can take the risk and just go up. But it is possible that if you happen to land on a day that's extremely 
extremely busy or they've taken a, a lot of online booking you could be very disappointed by the time you get to the event all the tickets uh, may be gone and I don't know if people are going to put themselves through that because everybody knows the it isn't the easiest of journeys to make to get to the ploughing and even though they have all you know different ways of getting into the ploughing championship there's always delays absolutely always delays getting into the field getting out of the field oh, I know it's all part of the day out but unless you're guaranteed that you're going to get to the ploughing I don't know how many people would get into a car and say we will just uh, risk it it'll be interesting to see Frank Roach reckons numbers are going to be down this year we'll only know after this year's ploughing championship if it's worked or not but the National Ploughing Association say that their hands are tied and it was all to do with last the Wednesday last year I don't know whether, if anyone can remember, was the Tuesday and Thursday, were they, was it bad weather on the Tuesday and bad weather forecast on, on the Thursday? I don't know. But there was a huge number of people uh, turned up and they got very close to ha- having capacity at the venue, which meant they would have had to close the gates and stop uh, people coming in. And it was after that the emergency services came and said, we need to review this. You're going to have to become an all-ticketed event. And that's why I took a look at it on Friday when the story broke. If you're planning on bringing children, and we know the children are are free under a certain age when they are accompanied by an adult you now have to get a ticket even though you're not paying for it but you have to register that the child is going with you so you're going to need to know in advance if you are bringing children uh, or not and how many children are travelling because they're going to have to have a ticket as well Someone else says well done to uh, Anna Marie who joined you on the programme and also her mother Anna May McHugh they're great ladies I met them at the McCroom planning only this year do you know that they went around the field and they spoke to every single competitor. Listen, ploughing is in their bones. Uh, It runs through their veins uh, for sure. And you could hear it. Anna Marie was saying if anybody can show her another way to do it, she doesn't want to be in the position that she finds herself in. Then somebody says, who signed off their text saying, I'm so cross listening to Anna Marie on your sh- on your show in our house, five of us used to go to the ploughing every single year, and we went for two days. None of us are going this year. It's a disgrace the way they are treating people. It's gone like the GAA, and that is a West Cork listener. And even after listening to Anna Marie explaining why they've been forced to do it, this listener says so cross listening to her, and we're, we've decided five not going to the uh, event. Hi Patricia. Another thing about this cashless society. And is this yet not another move to move us towards a cashless society? Governments and banks uh, are also keen to implement it. Not alone are you charged for it, but you also, I feel, have absolutely no privacy. They know every single cent you've spent. They know where you've spent it, when you've spent it and what you like to spend it on. Also, if the occasion ever arose, they can freeze your account The young generation, I feel, are a lot to blame for this, said Stephen. They're too lazy to handle or even count cash. Sure, isn't it much easier just to tap the old mobile phone? And that's from Stephen in County uh, Kerry, who is railing against a very notion of a cashless society. Um, My big fear about it is the older generation, the older generation who have gone for many, many years and they go to the ploughing and they almost look on it like it's their annual day out to go to the ploughing. And my fear is that some of the older people might be put on off by the notion that they can't pay cash at the gate. Somebody says, Patricia, wasn't there a statistic that showed how many Irish farmers are actually over the age of uh, 60? Sure, how are they going to get on the internet to book their ticket? My own neighbour is a single 75-year-old farmer 
He doesn't even have a smartphone that would enable him to go online. The one stat that I did have from the census last week was that, because one of the questions you may remember in last year's census was, do you, do you have broadband connection in the house? Now, there was a huge proportion of people did. I think it came in at 79% of householders had uh, broadband uh, connection. But when you looked at the households that didn't, the households in the younger age demographic, there was only something like 3% of the people from... 20 to 34 were without broadband but when you look to the the people over the age of 65 if I say the older generation I get it for that people over the age of 65 one in five households that's headed up by somebody over the age of 65 does not have broadband so yes you're right this is the, and many of those are living in rural areas and many of those yes would be farmers Kevin in uh, Skibbereen said it's the way things are going and I understand why they are making this decision but surely they should be able to offer cash at the gate. The cash option now is becoming less and less in every modern day life. And Derek was on to say, Patricia, the only place that you can now be guaranteed they'll take cash seems to be the hairdresser. Everything else seems to be going down the route of trying to encourage you to pay with your card. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. Text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. St. Joseph's Daycare Centre in Rathmore. They have the following community employment positions. They're looking for a dining room assistant and they're also looking for two trainee care assistants. No experience is uh, needed. And you can call 089 2247 454. Early Years Educator is wanted in the Bantry area. CVs to kalekillchildcare at gmail.com. While a general operative is needed for the installation of ventilation systems and general site work, that's for the Mallow Cork areas 086 083 and Carney's Centre, they're based in Valley Desmond. They're looking for a full-time deli manager, 064 775 You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Don't forget later on in the programme we do have those Lord of the Dance uh, tickets uh, to give away. This is the 25th anniversary show of Lord of the Dance. Hard to believe that show was going uh, 25 years and they are opening the Cork Opera House on the 9th of August and we have tickets to give away every day this week so do stay tuned for that. Now young people leaving care are left to fall off a cliff when they reach 18 years of age because of a lack of accommodation and residential aftercare services. That's according to advocacy body the Irish Aftercare Network and joining me to outline what the issues are is Neil Forsyth who is the communications manager with the Irish Aftercare Network. Good morning to you Neil. Hi Patricia. You're welcome to the programme. I suppose for the majority of young people when they turn 18 they remain living at home with their parents. So can you outline what happens to us when an 18 year old living in state care reaches that milestone birthday? Yeah um, 
Well, legally, um, once they reach 18 years of age, um, the, st- the state's responsibility for them um, um, disappears, really. Um, so it's, 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 it's really a, a legal provision. So in other words, the state takes uh, children into care who can no longer live with their families for, 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 for a variety of reasons. Um, and they take them into care as children. Um, and, and so once they're no longer a child under the law, um, the state's responsibilities um, are, are not the same. Um, so now that's not to say they don't have any responsibilities. There are um, aftercare services that have been in place for a number of years. But they, they, the level of care and support that they get once they reach 18 really, um, you know, it, it, it's so much less um, at that point. And in fact, that that that, that expression, the phrase, um, you know, the cliff edge of of um, once a young person reach, reaches eighteen, that, that that that's a phrase used by care leavers themselves. Um, wow. Often, you know, that's the way they feel that all of a sudden, um, all those supports they had, all that, uh, you know, while they were in care, and um, disappears, and they, you know, they're left really um, as as one piece of research was called left out on their own um, a number of years ago Focus Ireland published a piece of research called left out on their own and and that's what it feels like for them and at the moment um, you know yes many of them will have an aftercare worker but the you know the, the biggest challenge for aftercare workers supporting these young people is, is the lack of accommodation and the housing crisis and homelessness crisis has really brought that to a head and um, and as we all know um, the people who suffer most um you know, in crises like this, and especially with housing and, and homelessness, is the most disadvantaged. And young people leaving the care system are, um, you know, very much the most disadvantaged young people in the country. And of course, when we we know we have a, a, a housing uh, crisis, but it is particularly acute for people on their own looking for one and two-bedded uh, properties. They are almost impossible to find in most areas and that's the type of accommodation these young people will be looking for yeah yeah yes it is um look at the, the, yeah i mean look at I, i'm not sure of the figures in court but i'm sure um they're similar to dublin they've gone up uh, exponentially and just the number of properties that are available um has, has dwindled and and that has always been the private rental sector uh, over the years i've worked in this area it's always been one of the main uh, housing pathways for care leavers. And yes, it was always difficult, but you could find something. Now that's that's almost disappeared entirely. So we have a lot of young people who are leaving the, the, the care of the state and their, their options um, are, are very limited. And some of them are, are going straight into homeless services. Others are returning to their families of origin. And often, you know... Not a lot has changed, shall we say, since they were taken into care. So those those placements or the, those situations often break down a very short time after they, they leave care and they, they end up coming into to homelessness services. Now, Tusla are using student accommodation, um, but again, even the supply of that has, 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 um, has lessened over the last year. Um, so it's you know it's, it's because I mean the aftercare workers they can provide a lot of support emotional and psychological support and help them with their education and and all of those things but if the young person has nowhere to live yeah they can't put a roof over their head they can't yeah. physically put a roof over their head do local yeah. authorities uh, Neil have a role to play um, yes they they do have a have a role to play um, but unfortunately care leavers um, are, are not prioritised in the way we'd like them to be prioritised. And, and their particular vulnerabilities recognised um, enough by local authorities. There was um, 
uh, Tusla had um, an agreement with local authorities, a uh, protocol that was put in place a number of years ago, but it never came. It never came to anything. Um, there was supposed to be a cooperation between local authorities and, and Tusla on the lead up to a young person reaching 18, whereby they'd look at their housing needs and try to put something in place. But not, nothing ever happened, really. Uh, it, was, it, it wasn't a very effective uh, protocol. Um, you know, the, the thing about this, though, is, um, I mean, the, the, the main point here, I, I think, is Tusla in their own policy um, talk about, you know, acting in the role of a good parent. Um, and every time I see that phrase, I, I think, my God, um, I, I don't know many parents who, you know, would, would ask their, their, their young person, their child, to, to leave the home um, on, on their 18th birthday and say, well, look, you're not going to see me very often, but if this other person is going to uh, look after you, they might see you once every couple of weeks um, to check in with you. I mean, that's that's really, I find that very difficult. Um, I, you know, as a, as a moral question, I think it's, 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 it's one we need to answer. And the, the, the interesting thing about this, I mean, if we look at youth homelessness, for example, in the broader sense, I mean, that's increased by something like 120% since two, 2016. And a, a significant percentage of, of, of that number of young people are probably young people with care, care experience. And in the government's strategies on homelessness, they always talk about prevention. You know, mm. how can we prevent young people coming into homelessness? And look, an easy win, as far as I'm concerned, would be care leavers. Because when you're trying to prevent something like homelessness, often it's difficult to identify with who is actually going to become homeless. We know who these young people are. We know precisely when they're going to leave care and what their housing need would be. So why can't the state, the government, step in and say, look, no young person in, in our care is ever going to have to worry about homelessness. It shouldn't even cross their minds because we, in the role of a good parent, are going to make sure that they don't leave care until they have somewhere to live. And if we can't find somewhere quickly, well, then they remain in, the, in, in care until we can. I mean, that's sure, surely that's... That's, that, that that's what a good a, parent does. You know, that's what a good parent yeah, does, yeah. That's what I said at the outset, that you know, there's no parent listening when their son or daughter hits 18 to say off you go now you know wave goodbye yeah. I've given you eight, I've given you 18 years because I'm assuming Neil the big fear is if they end up uh, you know in homeless services you're heading down a route of possibly falling into addiction possibly falling into crime and, yes. and you know and, and their young lives that could be saved if they were steered in the right direction well, that's, that's exactly it. And, and, these, and these are young people who have had very traumatic childhoods. Yeah. I mean, to be removed from your, your family of origin, that must be the most, I mean, it's really, it, it must have been an awful thing. And then we re-traumatise them at 18 um, again. Now, I, I should point out that the majority of young people are in, in foster care. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of foster families do not do not ask them to leave at 18 because they've been with them a very long time and, um, you know, they're part of the family, they love them and, and they don't do that. And um, but there are there's a significant proportion um, of the let's say five five thousand six hundred children in care who, who are not in foster care and, and they are probably the most vulnerable. There's about three three hundred and eighty kids in, in residential care who are the most vulnerable, um, and they and they are the ones. So if if you if, if, we're not saying all children in care um, are going to end up homeless, that's that's just not a correct statement. But there's a very significant proportion who are. And if the state even concentrated on looking after those young people, 
I think we've made great inroads in, in, in closing off this, this pathway, this dreadful, as you say, once you end up in homeless services, and I, I work for a, a homeless organisation, um, I'm very familiar with what that does to young people. Um, it's a very, very damaging experience. And it just breaks my heart to think that the state, you know, had taken these kids into care. It said, we're going to look after you. We're going to be a good parent. And, and, and they end up in that situation. I mean, that's just the most disgraceful thing, uh, I have to say. Um, and we don't even know what happens to a lot of kids who leave care because the data that to, Tusla collected is, is not very good. Um, the, the, the Ryan report, uh, <laughs> which if people remember the Ryan report from 2009, that made a recommendation that the state um, should should do a longitudinal study to find out, well, what does actually happen to young people who leave the care of the state? It's 14 years since the Ryan report came out and, and, and the Department of Children and Youth Affairs is only getting getting around to doing that longitudinal study now. So it just goes to show that, you know, that the lack of, you know, focus on this group and, and you know, it's, it's out of, you know, a lot of the general public wouldn't be aware of this. Um, I, I kind of, because I work in this area, I'm just, I'm like, I'm in a little bit of a bubble. Yeah. But I know when I go out and talk to people in, in the general public and friends and they go, really, what, you know, they, they really find it difficult to understand. Um, so it's a very hidden thing. And, and young people, care leavers, they don't have a voice. You know, nobody's, well, okay, there are, they have their supports, their aftercare workers and the network, we do our best to highlight these gaps in policy and, and legislation. But really, they are on their own. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's very, very, it's very hard. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Listen, uh, Neil, I've enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that. Continue good luck with the great work that you're doing. And I can hear it in your voice. You're really passionate uh, yes. about it. So those young people are lucky to have you fight in their corner. So continue, thanks, continue to fight that fight. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Patricia. Appreciate it. Good Cheers. morning bye to bye. you. Bye-bye. What a lovely gentleman. That is Neil Forsyth, who is uh, with the advocacy body, the Irish Aftercare uh, Network, which I have to, I'll put hand on heart, say I wasn't even aware of this group until I heard about Neil, uh, heard about the, this issue with the 18-year-olds. And when I started looking into it, um, I was on their uh, website and yeah, uh, what happens to 18 year olds when they, if they're lucky enough to have been in, in wonderful foster families and we know there are many foster families listening to us uh, today who do have young adults who continue to live with them because they're very much part of the family but if they come out of residential state care and there's nothing there for them, what happens to them? As we- Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. We spoke about last week, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, finally announced a fully publicly funded assisted human reproduction treatment scheme for couples that will commence in September of this year. My next guest knows all about IVF treatments and her own experience led her to co-found the Toker-based National Infertility Support and Information Group and that was back in 1996. Helen Brown joins me to talk about what was announced last week and indeed the work of her support group. Good morning to you, Helen. Hi, how are you? I'm very well and and you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Firstly, did you ever think you'd see the day when finally a round of IVF would be offered free by the state? 
I did really, but um, because we've been fighting for this and uh, meeting uh, different ministers of health over the years and the fact that we were one of two countries in the world that don't fund uh, fertility treatment, that we knew eventually it would come, right? And um, and I'm thrilled now it's come because they are our present chairperson, Katrina Fitzpatrick has been uh, has taken over from chairperson for me and she's been working very, very hard. So we kind of knew in the pipeline that it was going to come. Um, and I'm just absolutely thrilled. The it's it's not kind perfect. of everybody's happy and it's yeah. not perfect, but it's the start. And we hope now that the parameters will widen, you know, next year and it's hopefully then in the future that it will embrace everybody who wants to go for treatment and fund up to three cycles like they do in the UK. And that seems to be the main criticism, Helen, since it got announced uh, last week. People are disappointed that there's only one round. Now, some couples will be lucky to get pregnant after one round. But generally speaking, that doesn't happen in the real world. No, no, it doesn't. When I went for treatment many years ago, it was a 15% success rate uh, on the first go because you're given drugs blindly. Do you know what I mean? So they give you the smallest doses because they don't know how your body is going to react. So therefore, that's why it is more successful the second and third time, because they know how your body has responded to the drugs that they give you, whether you produce too little eggs or too many eggs, and whether that the lining of your womb doesn't kind of thicken the way they would like it to be at the stage they would like it to be. So that's why it's kind of... um, uh, usually the second and third attempt would, would be successful. Like, as I mentioned earlier, it was 15% success rate when I first went, and now it's 40 to 50%. Oh, right. it's, it, it has gone up a little bit, but it's still... Oh, it's, yeah. But it's still... I, somebody said to us last week, it's almost like the first round is a trial round. You might be lucky, yes, yes. but it's almost like it's, it's a trial round. But it's the cost yeah. factor of it, um, Helen. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you have spoken with many couples o- over the years who uh, either had to give up because they couldn't afford anymore or ran into debt just to cover their treatment? Of course, so it, we would have had, of course, it like uh, with myself and my husband, uh, we were fortunate that we both when we met, we both worked near where we lived, so we could sacrifice a car because it was pointless having two cars. So we sold one car to go for treatment and also but like it wasn't successful. And eventually we got um, a credit card loan. I know people who have extended their mortgages. Wow. I've known people, yeah, I've known people that would have uh, like in the before the crash, which was quite a few years ago, like families would say of people who are now in their 40s and 50s would have about three to four siblings. Whereas now the people will have two, one sibling or two siblings. So the families that would have had a few siblings before uh, the crash would have helped out 500 Poons, 500, do you know what I mean? They would have got money from their parents and their family. When the crash came, 
that was horrendous. Nobody could afford to go for treatment and they sacrificed a lot and borrowed. Credit cards were maxed out. Oh, it was just, it was just very sad. And also what was very sad I found as well is that the people who put it on hold for two to three years uh, before they could afford treatment, it was discovered that they were nearly menopause. Oh, my goodness. And then they, so they had, had left it too late. So they had left it too late because they couldn't afford to go. And the options then for them would have been either to live a life without children, um, to adopt abroad, which is very expensive. Yeah, yeah. And or to go for donor egg. And donor egg is frightfully expensive as well. So look at it. It was it, it was horrendous for an awful lot of people. And when you look back on your own uh, journey, Helen, did you, did you ever work out mm. how much in total yourself and your husband would have spent on IVF treatments? I would imagine with IVF, travel, time off work, et cetera, et cetera, it would have come to about 60,000 wow. over, over about a 10 year period, 10, 50, 10, 12 year, year period. Yeah, we would have spent around that. My goodness. And were, were any mm-hmm. successful? Uh, I had one successful, but I lost early pregnancy. It was an oh early my pregnancy. God. That's heartbreaking. That really is uh, heartbreaking. So yeah. when you decided to set up this group um, back in 1996, have you become busier over the years, Helen, since you first we were, started out? Yeah. Ironically, now, when we set it up, when we set up the support group and the line, we were very busy. We would get calls from all over the country because there would have only been one clinic. I think two clinics set up around 1996. There were two clinics. So people would have had to travel and they would ring um, what's ahead of me and, you know, what is, what's involved and all that. Now there are so many clinics. The clinics have information days. So the calls are different that we would get today. We would get calls from people who, that it wasn't successful and they'd no one to turn to to share their grief. And we would get calls. Now we've quite a, a large membership of people who have gone for donor egg, who have donor, donor children. And um, like we have kind of moved with that and we have now books for the donor children. But IVF, even though it's still a closet subject, Mm. It's still, it's still, somebody will always know somebody who's been through it. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but, but we, touched, we touched on that actually a, a number of weeks ago. We were talking about somebody uh, who had gone through an IVF journey. We were just talking about the uh, almost taboo. People don't openly talk about uh, IVF. And because of that, I mean, it was heartbreaking to hear you say there, people contacting you. Um, looking for support for the bereavement because so few people will know that somebody that they're working with may have been going yeah. through this. Do we, yes. uh, how do we change that, Helen? Um, we like, I don't, I like going through IVF treatment, right? You have, you have programs on it. <clears throat> Making Babies was a program that a documentary that was on RTE. The media cover it. The yeah. radio covers it. But we, there's, it's up to the individual. Some people are quite shy and don't want to talk about it. And don't want and don't want to talk about it because 
I think some people attach a blame factor to it. And they might feel that their bodies have let them down, that they have a medical condition that is causing it. So it's a blame factor. I find as well that some people, you know, if they tell somebody or their parents or in-laws or siblings or a very good friend that they're having difficulty conceiving. I was shocked when people had said to me that they were asked who was at fault. Shocked I was. Oh, my God. Yeah. So somebody would look at somebody and say, is it your fault or is it the husband's fault? Yes. Oh, Yes, I was I was shocked and I've heard that a few times. Wow, wow. Are the, are the other one that, and, and we touched on it a, a few weeks ago as well, Helen, is this thing about, you know, if a, a couple are married a few years and they yeah. don't have any children and nobody knows yeah. what's going on behind closed doors and certainly behind the bedroom door, this thing of, God, isn't it about time for you to have a child? Or if you've had one, isn't it about time you had a second? That, that, those kind of comments, while they can be said yeah. in jest, can be really hurtful. Yeah, they can. And I think it's just, like, for me as well, I, very same things were said to me. And, uh, and, and sometimes people would say, um, you know, like, you'd want to settle down. No, no. And as I got older, people said, and how many children do you have? You know, that they know. kind of just automatically, you know, expected that we would have children. And I would have said, um, we don't have children. And uh, they would say, oh, right, right. Now, some people might say, did you go for a treatment or whatever? And uh, I would just say, look, I said, you know, this is my story. And and would you be open to, if somebody did say to you? Depending. Yeah. Depending. Yeah. Depending who the person is. Yeah. Um, if if it's somebody that I really don't know and I felt that she was just being nosy, okay. I wouldn't. Okay. But the, but the advice is, is for, for people just to be mindful. Choose your words. Just you know, Choose your words. Very carefully, yeah, Jess. You see, what people should realise that if they're in company and they don't know the people that they're in company with because they're with somebody who knows them, be very aware when people are talking about children and a person doesn't, don't presume yeah. that they have children. They've, they have, they're not speaking about, or if they might say, oh, my God, child, or they might say, my niece did mm. this or my, whatever. And just, you know, leave it at that. Yeah. You don't, it's obvious that they don't have children. So just leave it at that. And with couples leaving it longer, to settle down and a lot of that's got to do with the housing uh, crisis and a lot of couples are trying to get a, you know, a house over their a roof over their head before they contemplate going down the route of having children. So, you know, mums and dads are older. Is, is that leading, do you think, to more fertility issues? Oh, without a doubt, it would yeah. lead to more. Yeah. And you see what you have to, you know, people realise as well that <clears throat> sometimes they don't meet each other until they're in their late 30s. True. It can you be know, a second. A it can people, be a yeah. second relationship as well. It can be a second relationship yeah. also. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Age definitely plays a part. Age does play a part. OK, somebody wants to know what did Helen make of the cut off age being 41? for the free IVF? Yeah. yeah, I think 41 is a little bit too young. 
I think they should. I think they will probably expand it to a little older than that. But there's an awful lot of parents who conceive naturally in their early 40s. So that, um, you know, and I think that if they're not menopausal, I think if they have their AMH checked, there's a lot of people who are in their early 40s and their AMH, which is the egg quality, is quite good. So therefore, why shouldn't they be treated? Yeah. And, you know, Stephen Donnelly, in fairness, last week did say that this was the start and and hopefully yes, it's you know it's we've got a program underway. Let's get it underway and up and running in September. And hopefully then, yeah. as you know, I definitely yeah. do think you're right about the one round of IVF. I think that needs to be up, but I do think they need to look at the age one uh, as well, because you know overall, Helen, that fertility journey can it be a very lonely one for couples? Very. It can be very isolating. It can be very, it can be very lonely, and it definitely affects your mental health. Like we would hold meetings, regular face-to-face meetings <clears throat> in Dublin and in Cork. And it you be it's just amazing how when couples come in or the female, a lot of the females come on their own, you could feel that you could feel the hurt in them. And by the time the meeting is over, you can feel I can you can sense how relaxed they are because they have met like-minded people they have met people who know exactly what they're going through right someone by text says uh, don't forget about the dads they're often can be left on the sideline oh, when people talk about yeah. uh, IVF journeys yeah. yeah they have they and that's so true <clears throat> because it's the female that has all the tests done he has one test that's it then she she has a, a, a lorry loaded test. She goes into the clinics and having scans done all the time. And the male is kind of on the side. And yes, they need to be embraced. And especially I, what we find is that when the male, has, when the couple have been told that it's a male issue, and straight away they say, well, we can like that. You'll be going for ICSI, which is when you put the one sperm into the egg. And like that's that's not the solution to how he's feeling mentally. I know. Like when the like I had I had a lady that rang me and she said my husband had said to me he had to peel himself off the footpath. Oh God help him. When he left, because like to be told that you know his, his sperm count was God very, very low. God help him. And just um your your group, um Helen, how can people contact the National Infertility Support and Information Group? Well, they could, if they wish to email, they could email um, nisic at no contact at nisic.com or they can phone me. This is the only line that they can ring. Okay. And that is 0877975058. Okay. And we have that on file mm-hmm. uh, as well. And this, yeah, it's available 24 7. And if I cannot take the call, I will always ring back. Okay, but for people to reach out and just get that support, I think that's that's the one thing I think that's come out very strongly from our chat today. Listen, Helen, I've enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that. And continue good luck with the great work that you're doing at the support group. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Have a good day yourself. Thank you. That is Helen Brown. And that's uh, that support and information group, National Infertility Support and Information Group. It is based in uh, Toker. 0818 103 103. 
John Paul's taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862103103. We are coming up to um, take a piece of music, but we'll be coming up to news at uh, 12. And of course, 12 on a Monday means that Annalise Dressel, our nutritional therapist, will be joining us um, in the next hour. This year, 2023, Lord of the Dance, which was the follow-on show from the hugely successful River Dance. It was the follow-on show from uh, Michael Flatley and it went on to have massive global uh, success. It's 25 years since Michael Flatley first put on Lord of the Dance. So there's a big anniversary tour uh, happening this year. And the show has been changed. There's new staging, for example. There's new costumes and choreography. Uh, plus, I'm told, there's cutting-edge technology. So if you went maybe 25 years ago and really enjoyed it, I suggest you go back because I think it's going to be a very different but exciting show uh, to watch. And the the gang at uh, Cork Opera House and Lord of the Dance have kind of given us a pair of tickets to give away every day this week. And then on Friday, we'll put all of the five names in the hat and one person gets their prize upgraded to a hotel stay and dinner along with their uh, ticket. So this is by text and WhatsApp only, please. 0862103103. And it's an A or B uh, question. What year did Lords of the Dance debut? Was it 2005 a or was it B, 1996? So in what year did Lord of the Dance debut? A, 2005 or B, 1996? So we need you to give us the answer. A or B, along with your name and address by text or by WhatsApp 0862103103. As usual for these competitions, we'll leave it open for about 10 minutes and then we will get John Paul to select our winner for today who will be winning a pair of tickets but could have their prize upgraded at the end of the week for an overnight stay and for dinner. What year did Lord of the Dance debut? A, 2005 or B, 1996. Get Texting and WhatsApping, please, to 86 103. And by the way, the Lord of the Dance 25th anniversary show opens in the Cork Opera House on the 9th of August and then it will run for five at nights. We were talking about cash in the last hour and again, this time it's to do with the National Ploughing Championships and if you're planning on going to the National Ploughing Championships, you can go online now and book your tickets to either go on the Tuesday, the Wednesday or the Thursday isn't suiting everyone because most people say that when they go to the National Ploughing Championships they never know from one year to the next what day they're actually going to go. You're going to have to make plans in advance and this is all to do with health and safety and emergency services telling the organisers at the National Ploughing Championships that they can't have what happened last year and it was on the Wednesday. Those people attending, they got very close to capacity at the event and that I think put the frighteners on the emergency services and they said they can't have this happening. So that's why they said it has to go to an all-ticketed event. So you need to book your tickets in uh, advance. But of course, that has led to once again, when something goes online and booking tickets, we're back again to are we moving away uh, and are we moving towards more and more towards a cashless society and not dealing with cash doesn't suit uh, everybody. And Peter was on to say that the local, the rural not the local, the rural group of uh, TDs, they brought a motion to Dáil Éireann that cash would have to be accepted by all businesses. This was months ago, said Peter. While the government accepted that cash should be accepted by businesses in this country, they haven't implemented this uh, yet. And that is a discussion that is still ongoing 
within the, the government and within the opposition and on behalf of those group of rural uh, TDs and it is the all they're considering. It's what's called a protection of cash as legal tender uh, motion. So it's still, it just hasn't been put in place yes, yet but definitely it is something that has been spoken about actually having a law in place that would protect cash as legal tender. We're just not there uh, yet. And actually funny when Dennis Nocton was on to me uh, earlier and when we were talking with um, Dennis uh, we were talking about um, oh, that was to do with moving births, births and deaths onto an online forum and making sure that all different departments would be contacted but I mentioned just at the end of my chat with him that he was he has announced he announced it earlier this year that he's not going to run in the next election and we jokingly said whenever the next election would be somebody has pointed out and I did hear this over the weekend that Leo Varadkar has come out and said that there won't be an early general election because you have many people says there should be an early general election not everybody's happy with the cost of living crisis not everybody's happy with the way they government are being run at the moment and whenever these topics come up on this programme we're forever hearing people say they should call an election, they should call an election. Well Leo Varadkar at the weekend says no plans for an early uh, election stating that he plans to lead his party into the next general election and he also plans to form a new uh, government. There had been mutterings around Leinster House that we might have a general election next uh, spring, but Leo Varadkar has firmly squashed that suggestion. He was speaking to reporters last week just after the final cabinet meeting of the summer, and he says... And I quote, this is what Leo had to say. There are no plans for an early general election. He said, we're focusing on the job. And he said a lot of things the government needs to get done in the next number of months. He says, particularly helping families with the cost of living and supporting businesses and making our communities safer and really driving forward uh, home ownership. He said the, the next national election that will occur are the local and European elections. We know they're going ahead next year. And he said they're going to go ahead in June of next uh, year. So it looks like he's holding out. And of course, if he does, uh, and if the government do hold out, they can go until the following spring. They can go to 2025 before they then will have to hold an election. But he is firmly squashing the rumour that there's going to be a general election uh, next uh, next spring and interesting with him saying that he wants to one of the things that he wants to do is to make our communities safer and that's something I think uh, God knows all of us want is to make our our streets uh, safer and of course a lot of focus in recent weeks has gone on the streets of uh, Dublin and that had a lot to do with the US uh, tourist uh, Stephen uh, Termini who was quite viciously attacked in Dublin's north inner uh, city He's back in the papers uh, today because his sons have arrived from America to be with their dad and they've shared a picture online of the two sons standing in the spot where their dad was attacked. Stephen Termini's two sons, uh, Mike and Jesse, posted a picture uh, saying, my brother and I stood where our father was attacked. It's a very heavy spot but it'll take more than that to keep us down. He then went on to give an update 
on his dad's medical condition and he said our father has improved in his health. He's no longer now in a, a coma but it will be a long, long healing process and he said please stand by much love and his two sons then went on to thank those who've made it possible for them to travel from America to be with their dad in Dublin. We mentioned it last week that a GoFundMe page had been set up to cover the travel uh, costs and it went well over the 100000 I think initially it was set up they were looking for something like $20,000. Uh, I know up to yesterday I was looking um, on the website and I think it was up at uh, over 130 thousand dollars which is over a hundred and ten thousand euros so more than enough to get them here and to look after them while while they're here and hopefully some of that money will probably go towards rehabilitation for Stephen as well and the son said that the people of Ireland have been incredibly supportive and have been trying to help them every step of the way and they say they truly could not be more grateful for those people doing everything that they can for us it truly is making the entire process easier and again they couldn't be more grateful to uh, everyone and of course we mentioned this last week that three teenage boys now face charges for the assault on Stephen at Termini each have been remanded on bail and that's pending directions from the Director of Public Prosecution. And of course, I think it was the age of the boys, 14-year-old, 15-year-old and a 16-year-old. And the, that whole incident then prompted the wider debate on whether the streets of the Irish capital are safe. And on Friday, we had the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, who says she does feel safe when she walks ar- around uh, Dublin. And she, of course, announced an extra 10 million. And that's for Gardaí just in the Dublin region. And that is to do, uh, rather than having extra Gardaí, it's to do with extra additional funds to pay for overtime. But, you know, I made the point we're hearing from Gardaí who say they're, you know, they're burnt out, they're exhausted. I wonder how many will sign up to do extra hours. I suppose, I suppose only time will tell. And then we all had the shock when the US Embassy uh, came out and advised their US tourists travelling here to be aware of their safety. And that was due to recent incidents in Dublin City. And I think everyone accepts that we just need more Gardaí. We need to see more visibility of Gardaí on uh, the beat. There was a passing out parade that certainly made the news over the weekend and I know today I think there was about 150 extra gone into uh, Templemore but we simply can't train those young Gardaí uh, quick enough. 0818103103 John Paul's taking your calls. You can text our uh, WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. The new Bantry Memory Cafe, that's uh, taking place on the first Wednesday of every month. It's from 11 a.m. in the morning until 1 p.m. It'll be in the Maritime Hotel in Bantry. This free cafe hopes to provide a warm, welcoming place for people who are living with dementia, cognitive impairment and their friends and family to meet others who are in similar situation as well as health and social care professionals. If you'd like to find out more, you can contact Laura at 87 The Kinsale Triathlon Club 5 Mile Road Race 
takes place next Friday. Now, places are limited. You must sign up through the Kinsale Regatta Five Mile Facebook and Instagram uh, pages. There will be social dancing in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic next Friday as we kick off a bank holiday weekend. And that will be on from 9 to 12 at midnight. Music will be by Dermot Lyons and admission 10 euro, including your teas. And the Mallow Union of Parishes, that's Mallow, Donnerell and Castletown Road Church of Ireland. They're holding their annual fete on Saturday, the 12th of August. It'll be on the grounds of St. James's Church in Mallow. There'll be a raffle with lots of great prizes um, and tickets will be on sale, priced at €5. They'll be available on uh, the day, so they'll be inviting people to go along. That's on Saturday, the 12th of August. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy. McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Now I mentioned at the start of the programme there's a front page story that caught our eye on the Echo newspaper this morning just showing the lengths that some people will go to in order to try to secure their forever home with a number of couples sleeping out overnight at the site of a new uh, Cork development. Now the development, the houses up on sale are by DNG Creek and one of the sales agents, Shane Finn, uh, joins me to tell us more about what happened at the weekend. Good morning to you, Shane. Hi, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. Now, I'm told this is phase one of this uh, development. It's on the Waterfall uh, Road. Now, firstly, were you expecting people to park out overnight? Uh, No, we weren't. Um, But the levels of interest were very, very, very high. Um, So the... I suppose just to put it in context, um, the site is on the edge of the city. So it's in Bishopstown. It's just it's just outside the Waterfall Road. I actually just came off site there probably twenty minutes ago and like the views from the site you can see you can see the CUH, it's only two kilometres away. Marymount Hospice is only seven hundred and fifty metres away from the site. And the developers, one part of the planning criteria is that they must build a footpath and cycleway out to the development. So you could technically live in the development uh, with an e-bike or a bike, or you could run one car as opposed to two cars if you had a family. So this site is very much so, if you could imagine putting water on a table and watching the water run along the table, that's what this site is. That's, it's the city expanding out. Yeah, it's, and it's all location, location, location. Yeah, and it and is how an many, how many, location. how many houses in total will be going on this site? So there's a total of 275 units, and of which phase one was 42 uh, family homes. So you're right, we did. We had 19 people sleeping in the cars, but um, and it it does sound it does sound mental and it does sound crazy. But when you actually drill into the grants and you drill into um, you know the fact that it's a new home, that it's A-rated, that it's been built by an exceptionally reputable builder. Uh, it's been built by a company called Bridgewater Construction. They're ISO recognised. They're um, a CFI. They are part of the Construction Industry Federation. Uh, Lean Construction is another affiliation that they're with, um, and they build a really, really good product. So you have something that is on the edge of the city, on you know a really desirable area of the city. Um, of course, you're going to have demand. I just, to tell you the truth, we didn't expect to have people in the cars yet. 
But and what are we talking? Are they are they all three bedroom towers? Are they? They varied. Uh, so what we what we released were uh, there were three bed mid terrace houses. They were eleven hundred square feet, which is a really good size. There were three bed end of terraces. They were eleven hundred square feet, again a good size. And then we had four bedroom end of terraces, and they were over sixteen hundred square feet, which would be a great size. Um, and. Uh, yeah, that's what we released. And the building work, I believe, started in June. So they're not... When do you expect them to be finished? So 12 months. So, look, I, I suppose, you know, phase one always takes time because infrastructure is going in. So, like, you know, there's there's, there's a power cable going through the site that has to be buried. They have to get water onto site. They have to get infrastructure onto site before they can actually start building houses. So a platform has to be built. And then once the, you know, the platform is created it's much easier from there than to kind of go into phase two, three, four, et cetera. So you're, um, you're looking at a lead time of about 12 months. So you're, you're giving people an opportunity 12 months to save. So did everybody who, who parked out overnight, did all of them manage to put down a deposit or did they, all of them manage to secure a house? Yeah, so I, I suppose uh, the, the 19 that were True. So I arrived onto site at seven o'clock. So the developers um, on Friday at five past six, we were on site preparing uh, with the, the DNG Finn or the DNG Creedon Finn O'Connor team were up there, and uh, we were preparing for it. And we could see there was five cars waiting at five past six. So I obviously notified the clients, and what they did was they arranged for security and they got people in off the road. So it was very measured and very safe and there was a toilet there and things um the uh we sold as i said a total of 42 units but there were 66 uh potential purchasers that came up on the day so some um, some went away disappointed well they did but they didn't they didn't um i suppose you know we 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 advertised 13 days beforehand and um we took 800 inquiries in 13 days for the development from advertising to launch so 800 inquiries. When we advertised, we advertised on the Friday at half 12, actually 25 to 1. And by 2 o'clock, we had 100 inquiries. So for the first number of hours, we were doing an inquiry about every minute and a half. Um, so the fairest way and the cleanest way was we said to people, OK, we need to see proof of funding on the day. And if you don't have proof of funding, we can't talk to you on this phase. So we were talking to people who were ready and able to go. Um, so they so, mortgage mortgage approval. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that was one of the criteria. And like any time you're buying a house, like any time you know we're doing viewings or any time we're talking to buyers, they need to have it. So of the sixty six that came up, some didn't. You know, some had a tick list of houses that they wanted and they were sold, so they didn't go with it. Or others wanted different house types, and others wanted to come up and have a look. So yeah, there was a certain element of people disappointed, but there wasn't like. Honestly, the spirits were so high. Like the first girl that I met on Friday evening, I was chatting to her and I, I was just saying, look, I'm so sorry you're here. And she said, no, I'm so excited. <laughs> she said, I'm going to get a home for life. I'm so excited. And I said, what, when are you going for? And she told me, and I said, it's a lovely house. And she said, yeah, I'm doing it all by myself. I'm just so excited. And genuinely, it was that feeling. We went up there at seven o'clock. The developer rang me. He said, oh my God, there's 30 or 40 people up on my site. He said, get down to the shop and buy them breakfast rolls. And I said, I logistically can't, we can't logistically, we break a deli, we can't logistically manage that. So I said, look, we've got fruit. We, we organised car coffee roasters to come up at nine o'clock. And we had fruit and chocolate and uh, water for them as well. So we <laughs> started feeding them. Okay, and, well done. And, 
and uh, actually one of the purchasers was saying to me he said no no I don't want a banana I said look it's going to be the most expensive banana you ever get take it but it kind of yeah because when, when I saw it this morning it kind of brought me back to the the yeah, Pelty Tiger but, uh, era when you did have people camping out yeah uh, but see so the like headlines are grabbing right but if you actually drill into the detail right and I know you don't have a brochure for the development and I'd be happy to send you one and any of your listeners would like to jump onto our website and register we'll send them brochures but what we did here was we actually drilled into it and we looked at okay well what's this going to cost you and what incentives are out there and when you actually drill into it and you look at what it was going to cost the 19 people that actually went up were very clever they weren't mental they weren't crazy they were actually very clever because they're getting out of this rent trap that mm. they're in. And if you look, right, I'm actually, I'm just looking here at the, the mortgage calculators that we did. So, so there's two incentives out there at the moment. Some people know about it, some people don't. One of them is the help to buy, which is the old first-time buyer grant that some people might remember. So the first-time buyer grant or the help to buy scheme, that is 10% of the purchase price with the maximum of 30000 And you have to be paying PRSI for five years to avail of that. And if you're working one year, well, it's a sliding scale, so one to five, and the more years you work, the bigger the amount you get. So you get that grant. That's a €30,000 grant that you get from the government. As well, the government brought out this new scheme called the First Home Scheme. So the First Home Scheme uh, allows you to take 20% of uh, a family home and the government will will back you with it. And it's a shared equity scheme. And it, it They've taken it from the UK model and it works really well over there. And what they do is that they it's interest-free for the first five years and then there's from year 6 to 15, it's 1.75%. And then 15 odd, it goes up to 2.15%. So, so there like are schemes there is yeah, what there you're are, saying. There yeah, are. Because so, 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 somebody was asking, are there, are there any first-time buyer schemes for purchasing a second-hand home? No, there aren't. There's not. It's there all, they've got but, to be new but, houses. So, but, but, but what there is at the moment is that the banks have different rates of interest. So so a greener rate, you've probably seen the ads on TV. Uh, so if you're in a B, B3 energy rating, you get cheaper money than if you're a below yeah. a B. So, so for example, like on the brochure that we had, so Bank of Ireland at the moment is the cheapest rate out there, right? So they're 3.4% uh, interest fixed for four years. So if you look at the schemes, right? So on the back of the brochure, what we had was, okay, so we, we took 400,000 euros, which was the entry point for the development, and it went from four to five, where the was where we landed with pricing, right? So at four hundred thousand euros, and if you're eligible for all of the schemes, you can get eighty thousand from the first home scheme, which is twenty percent of four hundred thousand, and then you get a grant of thirty thousand of a first home scheme, which you never have to pay back as long as you live in the house for five years. You never have to pay that back, right? And so you get a, an A2 energy rated house, under floor heating. You've got, you know, it's a brand new out of the box gorgeous house and amazing location. So so that means that you're borrowing from the bank two hundred and ninety thousand euros, right? So so to get a mortgage of two hundred and ninety thousand, it's uh, four times salary. So if you look at uh, so if you divide that by four, that's a combined salary for a couple of seventy two and a half thousand euros. And then if you divide that by two, uh, that's uh, what is it? Thirty six thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very, so very affordable. Very like. Yeah, and so, and they will end up paying less than what they're probably paying at so the moment exactly. to rent. So, so yeah. I actually have all the figures. So listen okay. to this kicker, right? All right. Okay. So at two hundred and ninety thousand euros. So we looked at mortgage rates from 20, 25, 30 and thirty five years. So if you push it all the way out, right, just to get on the ladder, right? 
So if you pushed it all the way out for 35 years, that means you've got a mortgage of €1,182 a month for a brand new three-bed mid-terrace house, brand new out of the box, right? And then if you go up into 20 years of a mortgage, that's €1,667. So let's just imagine, right, that let's just round it off just for mathematics, right, because it's easier. €1,650 for 20 years is what it's going to cost you, €1,650 a month, which is which is guaranteed for four years, it's fixed, right? And there, there may be rate increases or it may drop, right? But for four years, it's fixed. So we have rented houses, brand new houses, in similar developments, very close to it. They were, they were brand new. It was the first rental. And because, unfortunately, of all the regulations that are out there, set out by government, landlords have to push the rents as high as they possibly can because of things called rent caps which I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of. So your first rent, you have to push it to the highest amount because you're stuck at that rent. There's a 2% increase. But So so €2,500 for that house, whereas you can buy a house off me. I know, it's crazy. It's, yeah, I know, I know. It's, yeah, and it's, then it, it, it's, if you subtract the two... We, we need, we unfortunately need, we're, we're getting bamboozled with numbers now, Shane. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we need more of these developments and we need more we houses do, yeah. houses so, being built. So, but listen... So instead of death, yeah, listen, I'm, it was cleverness. Okay, I'm going to leave it there, uh, Shane, of DNG, Creedon, Finn O'Connor. You're a great but, auctioneer. I give you thank that. You very much. And, and thank uh, you very thanks, much for the thanks. publicity. And can I just say, I'd like to congratulate the 42 new homeowners and I hope that the house brings them a lot of luck and a lot of happiness. Well said, well said. I was going to end on that note myself. Thanks for that, Shane. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us and the best of luck to those 42 uh, couples, individuals, families who managed to uh, secure their forever home last Saturday. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. Okay, Lord of of the Dance winner is Mary Murphy of, is that St. Enda's Road in Gronenbrough? St. Enda's Road in Gronenbrough. Congratulations to you, Mary. You've won a pair of tickets to go to Lord of the Dance. Uh, We asked what year did Lord of the Dance debut? It was, of course, uh, B, 1996. Congratulations. We'll do it all over again tomorrow. Another question, we'll get another winner. And then at the end of the week, we'll have five winners, each getting a pair of tickets, but one will get their prize upgraded to overnight stay and dinner along with a pair of tickets. We're going to take a break though and Annalise Drissel, our nutritional therapist, will be joining us. If you've got a question for Annalise, you can call John Paul at 0818 103 103 or if you want to text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. We're off to the Health Hub Times Square in Ballancolic, where Annalise Drussell uh, joins me. Good afternoon to you, Annalise. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you are very welcome. Let me get straight into questions because there were some that came in a little bit early and I did make a note of uh, them. Hi, uh, Annalise. What would you suggest as a supplement that I could take for chronic gastritis without interacting with other medita- medication that I'm on? Or should they, this person doesn't list what other medication they're on. Yeah, so, well, that would be an important thing to know, really. Um, well, chronic gastritis, anything itis, Patricia, is inflammation. So uh, gastritis is inflammation of the gastric is somewhere in the gastric system, usually the stomach, I suppose, really. But you can get inflammation anywhere down along. And in my experience, you really have to kind of try and figure out what's causing the irritation. So if it's in the stomach, 
it could be the presence of a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, H. pylori it's also called. And symptoms of that typically could be a lot of burping. Some people would get terrible um, diarrhea or constipation, a lot of bloating, especially after eating, sometimes feeling of nausea. And if they're allowed to kind of grow unchecked, they can actually damage the mucus-producing cells of the stomach. And the stom- they produce a lovely thick layer that protects the stomach from stomach acid. So if they're not working well, you will get the stomach lining will start becoming exposed and will get irritated by the acid. And that's where you get the gastritis. So that's the first thing I'd suggest is maybe get checked for the presence of that bacteria. Your doctor should be able to do a breath test. Um, that was typically the way it used to be diagnosed before, Patricia, was with the breath test. But then they started making people go into the hospital for a gastroscopy, which, to be honest, I think the breath test is almost as accurate so, and far less invasive. So push for that. Um, now, if you wanted to just treat yourself, what would be very safe to take would be something called mastic gum. Um, we have a lovely supplement here uh, by a company called BioNutri that we give to people with helicobacter or with inflammation in the stomach. And it's a combination of mastic gum and a few other things. The only thing that might be a problem in that is there is a little bit of licorice. So if your blood pressure is not well controlled, maybe it could raise your blood pressure slightly. That would be a small risk. Um, other things that work very well then for healing the gut overall are L-glutamine, which is the fuel for the cells in the gut. So it gives them the energy they need to be able to repair themselves. Also, zinc is very important. And we, we give people zinc carnosin quite a lot because that's very good for um, supporting the mucus producing cells in the stomach as well. And there's a great supplement here called GI Natra Wellness. And it is a combination of L-glutamine, zinc, um, there's probiotics in it, there's digestive enzymes in it. There's really everything in it that you need to support a healthy gut and to help heal um, an inflamed gut. So that comes in powder or capsules and it's by a company called Nature's Plus. So any of those should work well and be fine with most medications. Okay, a couple of people are on about high blood pressure, including this one. Hi, Patricia. Could you ask Annalise? Uh, is the, a cholesterol reading of 6.2 high for a woman of 58? I've been under a lot of stress the past year and a half, and that probably hasn't helped. Is there anything that Annalise could recommend to lower high cholesterol? I know diet and exercise is important, but what else can I take? And then Catherine was on to say after a visit to her doctor, she was told that she has both high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Now, she started on the cardio K for the cholesterol, but she's wondering what would you uh, recommend for the high blood pressure? She does have a, a good uh, diet and she exercises by walking a lot, so, but she doesn't know what route to go down with the blood pressure. So I suppose start with the high cholesterol first. Is the cardio yeah. okay the way to go? That could be definitely the way to go. Um, now, just to say, Patricia, cholesterol is a building block for... Um, our sex hormones, so our estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. And it's also a very important component of our cell membranes and particularly the fatty tissue of our nerves and our brain. So we do need cholesterol. And cholesterol is also a building block for our anti-stress hormone, which is the um, an anti-inflammatory hormone. So they can be elevated during times of inflammation, times of stress or during menopause. And for men as well, when testosterone is dropping later in their life, cholesterol can be elevated because the body is thinking levels are dropping. I need to make more cholesterol as the building block to make more. And it takes a while for that feedback loop to, you know, understand that it's not necessary anymore to keep making that level of hormones. Um, So 
I'm not always too worried about elevated cholesterol around the time and after menopause. I think what's important is to make sure your good cholesterol is good. So if you really are concerned about getting your cholesterol down, Cardio K has got red rice yeast in it and it also has plant sterols. Um, and they are very good to help reduce cholesterol. But I also would be um, taking a fish oil supplement to try and get your good cholesterol levels up. And that's, again, fantastic for supporting you after menopause or if you're stressed or if there's inflammation because they are anti-inflammatory for the brain. They keep your blood nice and thin, so they're very heart healthy. They can help with blood pressure in that way. They're great for your skin. They do support like inflammation in joints as well as everywhere else in the body. So they do so many jobs. So I definitely would add to the red rice yeast, which could be cardio K. Um, I would definitely add the omega-3 fish oils. And the best ones I love is the Unocardio. They're spelled U-N-O-C-A-R-D-I-O because it has also your vitamin D in there, which is great for your bones. And we have a lovely product as well called, um, it's by a Spanish company that I have um, started getting some products in from Spain. And it's the company is called Batula and it's called Normocol, N-O-R-M-O-C-H-O-L. But Patricia, in that, there's also some berberine, which I think is brilliant for helping uh, blood pressure. It's great for um, helping keep your cells sensitive to insulin, so they help our preventative against type 2 diabetes. There's also um, some pine bark extract in there, which is a fantastic kind of natural antioxidant for the brain and for aging. And it also has the red rice yeast and the Q10. So that's the Petula Norma call, or else your cardio okay and a fish oil for cholesterol. Okay. Now, the blood pressure. If your blood pressure is high and has been high for a long time, truthfully, I think you're better off going on the medication because elevated blood pressure over time will damage your heart and also increase your risk of stroke. So you really can't be playing around with it. It's not like cholesterol, which takes a long time really to cause problems for your health. So in this case, I'd probably support the body by maybe adding magnesium. Um, and also hawthorn is very, very good as a herb for the health of the blood vessels. So it would help your blood pressure in that sense. Um, and it will keep your heart healthy. And especially if your cholesterol is high, it keeps all those veins beautifully clean and working very, very well. So I would, could, you could add the two of those. But I think if your blood pressure has been elevated for a while, just go straight on the meds. You can do everything else anyway, but get that blood pressure down. OK, another question in from where are my questions gone? Uh, sorry, there, there, there's so many questions. I'm trying to get to the right one. OK, um, what would you recommend for osteoporosis, please? I'm taking vitamin D, 25 UG daily. What is the proper dosage and what else should I be taking? That's from Mary. Osteoporosis. OK, so osteoporosis um, is where the bones lose their density and they become more prone to breaking. And I think we've fairly high incidence in Ireland and personally I don't think it's because of a lack of calcium in the diet which is important for building bones because we've actually plenty calcium in Ireland. I think it's probably more likely to be the lack of vitamin D so it is very important to take a vitamin D supplement all year round if you've got osteoporosis and I think if you're on if you're menopausal I think I would start taking it around then as well because oestrogen has a hugely protective effect for your bones so if you are post-menopause you'll be lacking oestrogen of course. Now you can take plant-based oestrogens and they are wonderful for the bones as well but at the very basic level a vitamin D and a, a D3 and a vitamin K2 supplement. So K2 will get the calcium out of your diet um, onto your bones. Vitamin D will help you absorb calcium from your diet and then include foods in your diet like um, of course dairy is a good one 
but also things like almonds and sesame seeds are amazing sources of calcium if you can't take dairy. So are oranges and green leafy vegetables. Um, hummus, chickpeas, lentils, kidney beans, all of those are very high sources of calcium as well. So there's no reason that you'll be lacking um, calcium in your diet. And then if you feel you're not getting a lot of green leafy veg in, uh, it might be good to take magnesium because they both work together for building bone. And some studies have shown a, miner- a mineral called um, strontium. It's not one that we'd ever hear about can be um, a superb for, for supporting um, osteoporosis and healthy bones. So the supplements that we get great feedback on here, if you want an all-in-one, is the Nature's Plus, Plus Garden Bone Support is very, very good. And then uh, that's the top of the range one. And then you've got the BioCare Osteoplex is another good one. And Nature's um, NHP, they also do one called Osteo Support. So any of those should have kind of mostly everything in there that you need for healthy bones. Okay, listen, we'll wrap it up uh, there. Thank you for that. We won't be with you next week because we'll be having our bank holiday weekend. So enjoy uh, the bank holiday weekend and we'll talk to you the following week. Thanks for that. Thanks, Patricia. Uh, Bye-bye. That is Annalise Drussell of the Health Hub Times Square in Balancolic. And of course, as Annalise does every afternoon, if you go to her website, which is healthhubstore.com, she'll put up all of the information that we spoke about today because sometimes it's hard to catch uh, the names of some of the products that Annalise is talking about. And then, of course, as a separate podcast, John Paul will put it up uh, where we get your podcasts from or by going to our website, c103.ie. If I could turn back time If I could find a way I'd take back those words Stay. I don't know why I did the things I did. I don't know why I said the things I said. Rides like a knife, it can cut deep inside. Words are like weapons, they wound sometimes. I didn't really mean to hurt you.
That's music from Cher on C103 and If I Could Turn Back Time and the full-time result coming from Brisbane in the Women's World Cup, Ireland v Nigeria and it is a nil-all draw. That's the last match for the Ireland girls. They'll be making their way home and they can hold their heads up high. They have done us uh, proud. Okay, that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and then we're back with you tomorrow morning morning at at 10 o'clock. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Have a very good afternoon and we look forward to talking to you tomorrow. And of course, our email remains open. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. cmig.ie. Martina O'Donoghue has Cork's greatest hits for your drive home on C103. This week, we're supporting our girls in green once again down under. Get out your flags and bunting and cheer them along while also listening to Cork's greatest hits on drive time. We'll keep you informed on the best shows to watch on TV and we'll keep you up to date on traffic and travel too. Drive time, weekdays from four. Let's go home together. Only on C103. Here, what's the story with Ruth and her zero alcohol beer? Maybe she's doing dry January. She's a bit late. (laughs) Could be on antibiotics. I'm not sure Ruth is fit as a fiddle. Maybe she has an important fiddle recital? Nah, that was last week. Wasn't bad, actually. Got the car with you tonight, Ruth? No, I don't. You never need a reason to enjoy a great-tasting beer. Heineken Zero. Zero explanation needed. Jones, Craddock Joint Venture Limited, working on behalf of Cork County Council, will temporarily close the new N22 McCroom Bypass Road from 9am on Tuesday the 8th of August and reopen it again on Friday the 11th of August 2023. This is to facilitate the removal of the temporary roundabout at Carrigafuca, west of McCroom Town, and to allow for the extension of the bypass as far as Toon Lawn, Balifakira. The alternative route for westbound traffic during this closure will be by way of McCroom Town Centre. Eastbound traffic will be able to get back on the McCroom Bypass at the Mill Street Road. Once the N22 reopens to traffic after this closure, traffic will be able to travel westwards on the new N22 as far as Toon Lawn, Bolivikira. The contractor would like to thank the travelling public for their patience with these works and advises that care be taken with the new layout at Toon Lawn. 
C103. The outlook just got even brighter with further reductions now added to the fantastic Harry Curry summer sale. View in store at Turner's Cross Retail Park or online at harrycurry.com. Harry Curry, see what's in store. On FM, FM. online, online, and on your phone. This is C103 News. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save 